I'm John Wainwright, and this is the Cap Impact Podcast. Today's episode is part two of our Justices on Justice conversation featuring retired Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. It's also going to be the last episode of the month for November, uh, with next week being Thanksgiving. So we're going to take the rest of the month off. We'll be back in December with a look ahead at the next legislative session here in California. Uh, the new makeup of the legislature, as well as maybe some issues to keep an eye on. So with that, I will hand things back off to Professor Leslie Dio Jacobs for the rest of Justices on Justice conversation. Uh, we'll have one more question to ask of the justices, and we'll start with um, Justice Power Ford here. Um, and what we're going to ask about, I thought that it would make sense for each of you uh, to talk about uh, a primary responsibility of your courts is to interpret the meaning of individual rights, such as liberty, equality, dignity, free speech. Would make sense, maybe perhaps what you could do is take uh, the time that you have to tell us what you think is most important and will be most interesting to us to learn about your court's interpretation of those rights. Yes, uh, thank you. Liberty, of course, is protected under Article 5 of the Convention and the court takes that very seriously. It has a very strict interpretation of the circumstances under which a person can be deprived of his or her liberty. Um, I suppose the recollection of the knock on the door coming at midnight and the uh, Gestapo or the secret police taking people away, uh, that was very much part of the memory of, of, of the European psyche. So the protection of liberty um, is, is treated very ser seriously by the court and it's subject to the most careful scrutiny. And the court has confirmed time and again that those who are deprived of their liberty are in a very vulnerable position and states have a duty to protect them. It has been applied in lots of different contexts, obviously prisons and detention centers, but also where mentally ill patients have been detained in hospitals. It's been also interpreted in the context of somebody who's trapped in crowd control for the day and they can't move um, because they're corralled. So liberty is, is a very serious uh, seriously protected under the Convention. We don't have an equality provision per se, the right to equality, but under the Convention, under Article 14, there is the right not to be discriminated against on, the, on various grounds such as sexual orientation, religion, race, and so forth. And the court has ruled in a number of cases um, what, what that provision means. Um, dignity, I don't see as a right. It's mentioned in the preamble to the Convention, but I don't consider dignity as a right. Uh, to my mind, dignity is a reality that grounds all fundamental human rights. It's because you are human, you are of value. Uh, because you are human, you have dignity, and that is why rights inhere in us as individuals, and the state's duty is to respect those rights, and where it does interfere with them or curtail them in some way, it must meet uh, rigorous standards in terms of justification. I suppose for me, the greatest area of contrast between the European system and say the American system has been on the question of the treatment of prisoners. A long time ago in Searing versus the United Kingdom, the Strasbourg Court found that it would violate Article 3 of the Convention to extradite Mr. Searing to the US. He'd been accused of murdering, um, I think, his girlfriend's parents, and the court understood that if convicted, he had the possibility of spending his, uh, of the death sentence and obviously spending time on death row. And the court found it would violate Article 3, the prohibition on torture and inhuman and degrading treatment, it would violate that provision if Mr. Searing were to spend years waiting on death row, not knowing of uh, what was to become. So that was an early case. But last, in, in the last couple of years, 
it delivered a very important judgment called Vinter and the United, versus the United Kingdom. Mr. Vinter and his co-applicants were very serious criminals. They had been convicted of the most heinous of crimes, and they uh, were subjected to whole life sentences under the UK-British system. Under the UK law, you could have a, a life imprisonment sentence, which was reducible you know, after, after a certain period of time, but you also had under the law whole life orders, which meant that at the time of sentencing, the judge could say, this offence is so egregious, you must spend the rest of your life in prison and you may never be released. Mr. Vinter and his co-applicants were the subject of whole life orders, and they came to Strasbourg saying that deprived them of uh, their right not to be treated in an inhuman and degrading manner. It was a difficult case for the court. And the court found, it went to the Grand Chamber, and the court found that it did indeed violate Article 3 of the Convention to sentence somebody to life without parole forever, with no possibility. It said it would be capricious to expect a prisoner to work towards his own rehabilitation or her own rehabilitation without knowing when, at some future date, there might be a mechanism introduced which could allow them to be released. And I put in a very short concurring opinion in that case, explaining in two paragraphs why I agreed with the court's judgment, because it was difficult. I thought of the victims of Mr. Vinter and his co-accused, and the horrendous pain that he had inflicted upon them. I thought of the victims' families, and the lifelong suffering to which they were subjected because of Mr. Vinter's activities. But I thought of Mr. Vinter and his co-accused, his co-convicted, in prison for life. And for me, I, I suppose I would, I would, I would, I was, I was explaining that no matter how egregious the wrongs that a person may have committed, that person retains his basic humanity. And part of humanity, part of what it means to be a human being, is to have the capacity to change, is to have the capacity to hope that one day a person may have atoned for the wrongs that he or she has done. And I have to say, I was uh, thinking about the film Shawshank Redemption, I'm sure you're familiar with it, where, you know, Red goes in before the parole committee time and time again, and yes, I've been re rehabilitated and still it's rejected, until finally he goes in and he's asked, you know, he doesn't want to play the game anymore. And he says, do you want to know, am I sorry for what I did? And the parole officer asks, well, are you? And he says, there's not a day goes by that I don't think of what I did. I want to talk to that stupid 16-year-old kid, and I want to tell him how life is. But he says, I can't do that, and all I've got left is this old man. So, you know, I think it is possible that human beings can change, can come to understand the nature of what they have done, and can seek to atone for the wrongs that they have committed. And if after 40 years, a person has rehabilitated himself or herself, and has shown genuine remorse and atonement, I think, I think it is an affront to that person's dignity to say you may never ever hope that you may someday be reintegrated into society. So that short opinion on the right to hope, um, it, it, it explained my position and the judgment went on to have an effect on other uh, decisions of the court whereby the court refused to extradite uh, prisoners with mental health problems to the US where they were suspected of having committed terrorist offenses and if convicted could spend their lives in the supermax facilities, the high, high controlled facilities. Uh, the court found to do that in certain circumstances could violate Article 3. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of compressing what I want to I say, but I think that's, uh, it's in the area of the treatment of prisoners that um, I think our court has made a significant contribution to human rights protection. Thank you so much. Justice Gordon.
Well, first, I don't want to be upstate about Justice Tolson. I had Justice, <laughs> I mean, uh, Professor Tolson. I had Hans Tolson as a professor uh, in a course in international law at the University of California. And I remember the first class that Tolson stood up there and he said, there are various theories of international law. There is so-and-so's theory and there is th another theory. He says, we will study Kelson's theory. <laughs> That's what we study. Um, Kelson uh, was a legal positivist, meaning that he viewed the law as a, 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 a rational system uh, based upon certain principles of process which gave legitimacy to laws. Um, and uh, the legal positivists did not focus so much upon uh, what they would regard as moral questions. Um, it, it was part of our American constitutional history that the Constitution is phrased in broad general terms which incorporate concepts such as liberty and due process of law. Uh, and these were not given definition by the framers. Uh, they were left to be developed through the process of adjudication over time. And that has resulted in a certain flexibility, some, some would argue too much flexibility, but a certain flexibility uh, in the development of constitutional doctrine. And the Constitution has changed. I mean, the, the, the federal Constitution changed dramatically uh, after the Civil War when the concept of equality was first introduced. When the con federal Constitution was adopted, not only did it not mention anything about equality, but it also uh, gave at least tentative approval to the institution of slavery. So things have changed over time, and they've changed, I think, uh, in, in a direction which is significant for the nature of this panel, and that is uh, they've changed uh, in the direction of considering how human rights are treated around the world. Uh, the United States, at least in its legal system, is not as insular as it once was. Uh, so, for example, uh, with respect to the rights of prisoners, uh, a friend of mine who was on the Supreme Court of Oregon by the name of Hans Lindy, uh, back in 1981, wrote an opinion in a case called Sterling against Cup, in which the question was whether uh, the practice of body searches, uh, including of prisoners, including uh, sexually intimate area, areas by officers of the opposite sex, uh, violated the Oregon Constitution. And Lindy said in that opinion, uh, referring to the principles of 
privacy and dignity, which he found implicit in the Oregon Constitution, he said, indeed, the same principles have been a worldwide concern recognized by the United Nations and other multinational bodies. The various formulations in these different sources in themselves are not constitutional law. We cite them here as contemporary expressions of the same concern with minimizing needlessly harsh, degrading, or dehumanizing treatment of prisoners that is expressed in our Constitution. Um, so I think there's been a, a, a convergence uh, uh, around certain principles of human rights uh, in which there is respect for the decisions of other tribunals, including tribunals from other countries. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's one of the most important characteristics of our, of our rule of law today. Dr. Brunstetter. I'm uh, very glad to hear so much about Hans Kelsen here. <laughs> uh, as I said, uh, he's, he's really honored in Austria. And uh, I was very glad four years ago when I had the chance to uh, organize a monument in honor of Hans Kelsen um, next to, his, uh, to, his, to the house where he was born in Praha, together with my uh, Czech uh, colleague, the Minister of Justice there. So um, it's, uh, well, especially for, for the students here, I mean, if you study law, uh, it makes sense uh, to spend a short time to study the biography of Hans Kielsen. It pays, believe me, it pays, it will help you. So, well, what about, uh, what is to say about our practical cases? I mean, uh, I can make it short. It's all about the European Convention. Uh, we are following very strictly in Austria. And uh, by the way, I think it really makes a big difference if a European country joined the convention or not. And this has uh, um, practical uh, consequences, even for politics. When I was minister, I had to decide about um, extraditional uh, cases, extradition. And uh, it was obvious and clear for me that uh, if a country asks for extradition, uh, the European country, which uh, did not join the European Convention of Human Rights, no way, I didn't. So even if it's uh, somehow very difficult to deal with countries that uh, are members of the convention, I remember when I was uh, in Strasbourg uh, the last time, two years ago, this was a time when uh, the Kurd received uh, about 300 complaints from Turkey each day. but. The fact that uh, these countries accept an institution above them, this is better than they wouldn't. So I think it's very important to make this difference. Well, and uh, just to give you an example for practical decisions we recently had to take. Uh, last year, the court decided that marriage has to be open to people of the same gender too in order to avoid discrimination. So. We now have same-sex marriage in Austria. Prior to that, we had a so-called registered partnership for same-sex couples, which was recognized and accepted by the state, but uh, not have the same legal consequences as the traditional marriage. And the court had accepted the right of same-sex partners 
to adopt children before that. So the situation in Austria is quite the same as in 15 other member states of the European Union. So the majority of the European member states, they are now accepting same-sex marriage. Just recently, the Austrian Constitutional Court decided that no person can be forced to declare his gender if that person identifies as other than male or female. Decisions like that deal with individual freedom and aim to avoid discrimination. And we have a huge number of decisions dealing with equality. Since the principles of equality in Austria are a strong standard for legislation. And since 2013, Austrian citizens or residents can individually appeal to the Constitutional Court on the grounds that their fundamental rights of freedom, equality, or dignity were violated. So we receive a high number of complaints because of this reason. Just recently, a complaint was lodged by a detained man who was convicted for a serious crime. And you have to know that in Austria's prisons, detainees are urged to work in prison in a various uh, sort of trades or professions. And this is very important for the re-socialization afterwards. And this man appealed to the Constitutional Court to have the right to form a union, a union to protect the rights of the working detainees. As you can imagine, the court denied this demand since the rights of people in prison are very well guaranteed by law, in particular by the European Convention on Human Rights. There are naturally significant differences between the court decisions in Europe and in the United States since the legal basis, the constitutional law, is different. Therefore, Austria has a different approach to questions like separating kids of refugees or migrants from their parents, which is strictly forbidden by Article 8 of the European Convention of Human Rights. Austria also has to handle the question how to treat people suspected of terrorism in a different way compared to the United States, according to the European Convention of Human Rights, which would not provide a legal basis for institutions such as Guantanamo. No way for Europe. So Austrian's constitutional court also has to decide on a large number of complaints brought by migrants from countries like Pakistan, India, Afghanistan, Iraq, or African countries who were determined not to have a right of asylum by lower courts. So this are, on the whole, issues we are dealing with just now. Thank you so much. Justice Kennedy. Uh, prisons were mentioned, so let me confine my remarks to, to, to that, although it's a huge subject. Uh, the legal profession for decades uh, was not interested in prisoners. We were fascinated with the guilt-innocence process, um, how to try a case, uh, what the substantive criminal law was. Uh, once the appeal was over uh, and the key was taken away, the, 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 the legal profession had no interest. Um, it, in my law school, we, I don't think we ever 
heard one word about the condition of prison and prisoners. Um, this simply, simply has, has, has to change. Uh, for, for years, for decades, uh, the medical profession knew a lot more about the conditions of prisoners and the problem of prison than the legal profession did. Um, it's difficult uh, to have a course in it. You don't make a lot of money out of representing prisoners. It's, it's hard to say that you're going to practice this area of the law, but the legal profession simply must do something about it. Uh, a few years ago, uh, California had close to 200,000 people in prisons. If you count that it's $30,000 a year per prisoner, that gets some people's attention. And if I have to take a monetary uh, concept in order to get people to think about the humanity, I'll, I'll, I'll settle to do that. Our prison terms are eight times longer than equivalent prison terms in uh, England and, 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 in, and in Western Europe for, for, the, for the same crime. Um, we have problems of solitary confinement. The numbers are not clear, but it seems that we may have as many as over 20,000 people in the United States in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement can drive men mad. One of the things in the military that some of us had to do, you were locked in a cage. Uh, be forced to give you something more than name, rank, and serial number. And after six hours, uh, you think you were going to lose your mind. What about six days? What about six weeks? What about six years? Uh, there are little things. In, 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 in England, what they do is prisoners, and, and some are very dangerous and, and, and have to be kept in special conditions, are in a semicircle so they can talk to each other. Little, little things like that. Uh, you, you mentioned um, in, 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 in your, your remarks, uh, Judge Powerford, uh, the idea of hope. Remember that uh, in, in Dante's Inferno, uh, when you entered the, the, the lowest level, it says, leave aside all hope, ye who enter here. This simply cannot be true in, in, in our prisons. We have held that it is unconstitutional uh, to sentence a juvenile to life in prison without parole. Uh, and, but this is just, just the beginning. Uh, and you might say, oh, I'm, we're, I'm, in civil, I'm, in, I'm in civil practice, I'm not in criminal practice. These prisons are yours. And this indignity and this injustice is yours. And I think uh, it's, it's very, very important uh, for us to focus on what's happening or what's not happening in American prisons. And I think it, it deserves observing that Justice Kennedy is the author of a five to four opinion upholding a three-judge uh, decision in uh, federal district court in California uh, ordering uh, the release of, uh, of prisoners uh, because of prison overcrowding and deplorable uh, conditions, including deplorable medical conditions. It was a controversial ruling, I think. Among many other decisions, Judge Kennedy deserves credit for that. Okay, well, so now uh, we're entering the final phase of our program, and it will be a bit of a lightning round. <laughs> but I want to say, uh, I want to thank everybody who submitted questions. We're certainly not going to be able to address all of them, but the Capital Center runs a blog called Cap Impact, and so I think we're going to take it upon ourselves to at least publish the questions that everybody asked, and so you'll be able to see that and um, 
I certainly won't obligate anyone to provide answers, but I think it's important to have all your ideas out there. With that said, I have three selected questions, and I believe what I'm going to do is I will read all three of the questions, and then we'll give each justice the chance to choose which one uh, you would like to answer um, in the um, slightly less than 10 minutes we have left. So, and number one, uh, from one of our pre-law students, who I believe is out in our satellite uh, areas, uh, was there ever a case where your personal ethics or moral system affected or threatened to affect your handling of a case? Okay, the second one is actually directed to Judge Power Ford, um, and it says in the introductions, it was stated that you emphasized children's rights in your work. In your opinions, in your opinions, what are the next steps that need to be taken in the national and international community to protect the rights of children? And the third question, what are your views on whether it's appropriate for judges to have life tenure? Well, I'll take question number one. Okay. Um, uh, we we have we have this uh, myth, uh, which we we, we trot out uh, every so often that that judges uh, are like referees, uh, calling balls and strikes, and that this is a purely objective, neutral process that is unaffected by the person's background or by their moral values, and. Um, I, I don't know very many uh, lawyers or judges who would accept that as an accurate description uh, of what judging is about. Because many of our legal rules and certainly many of our constitutional principles embody values which require interpretation and reinterpretation. And so values and moral, moral judgments are in a way unavoidable uh, in the process, certainly, of constitutional jurisprudence. Uh, Benjamin Cardozo, who is a very wise man, uh, said this uh, more than a century ago, uh, but he also admonished that the, the values that a judge should bring to the decision of cases should not be his own personal idiosyncratic values, uh, but rather the values of the society, the community as expressed in its legal documents and in prior judgments, uh, and in the ethos of that society, and I think that that's true. But in answer to the question the way it is phrased, was there ever cases in which uh, my moral uh, uh, system, I think this is the the question was phrased, uh, affected uh, my decision in the case. Uh, and I would say, of course. Um, uh, and particularly with respect to constitutional issues, which doesn't mean uh, that, that I or any other judge would properly uh, uh, decide the case on the basis of that judge's notion of morality without regard uh, for the language of the Constitution or the statute or legal precedents, uh, but rather that values are implicit in the decision of judges in a democratic society. 
I'll, I'll, answer, I'll oh. answer this, the same question. It's a, a pre-law student. Uh, welcome to the law school. Uh, thank you for the easy question. <laughs> uh, it's one of the hard, look at every judge, every day, must ask himself, must ask herself, what is it that is impelling my decision? Why am I about to do this? And even if you've done it a hundred times, you still have to ask that question the hundred and first time, because you have to know what it is that's driving your decision. Uh, are moral values important? Of course they are. But what's also important is a structure in which people can, ex can express their own moral values. Take the First Amendment. Uh, we have uh, opinions uh, which read as follows. Every book is as good as every other book. Every movie is as good as every other movie. I mean, is that really true? All we're saying is the government doesn't make that choice. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't make that choice. And the very fact the government doesn't make the choice means that you should be vigilant in, in defending your own moral values, your own taste. Let me guarantee you this. The next time you see a TV show or uh, uh, reviewing a book or reviewing a, a movie that's absolute junk, Someone will say, oh, well, there's a First Amendment right. I know that. The point is, it's junk. <laughs> and, and simply because there's a First Amendment right to do something doesn't mean that it's correct. You have your own moral values. And the citizen has to exercise those moral values as well as the judge. Thank you so much. Should I go to uh, Dr. Brunstetter? And then we'll yes. end since you have a question specifically directed to you. I just wanted to add that uh, since I'm a member of the Constitutional Court, I learned that uh, the strongest argument is the prior jurisdiction of our court. And uh, this is not so bad because uh, so we can be sure that not too much from our personal views are influencing the new decisions that have to be made. So in practice, well, I don't think that uh, the personal view um, has so much influence. And uh, by the way, that's what we learned from Hans Kilsen. <laughs> judge Powerford. I have to confess I'm probably the only judge here who's not a supporter of Hans Kelsen. Um, I, I, in studying jurisprudence, he was very much presented as a positivist philosopher. And uh, I think if you were to have a quick look at even one or two of my dissenting opinions, I, I'm not a positivist. But that said, I think judges have the obligation, of course, to comply with the law, to interpret the law. They cannot go off on a frolic of their own making up the law because that is not, that is not serving the public in terms of legal certainty. They are bound to uphold the Constitution and the law. Um, that said, the Constitution and the laws need to be interpreted, and I suppose how they are interpreted by different judges uh, depends very much on the values, um, as you said, which judges bring to uh, the exercise of interpretation. But I've been asked a specific question, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to address that, and that is the question on children um, and children's rights. Um, I suppose, you know, the, the standard answer in the Strasbourg Court case law is that when a case involves a child, the overriding, the primary principle that a court must, decide, must um, bear in mind is the best interests of the child. Children, you know, 
we, we don't own our children. We have custody of them for a while. And within a very short time, they become the adults you know, th that we have become uh, rather quickly. Um, and the court, I think, has, gone some, has made some progress in terms of ensuring that we, we put the best interests of children first, um, most particularly in the area of the detention of unaccompanied minors. As, as um, uh, Dr. Brandstetter had mentioned earlier, there is a huge problem, a huge opportunity, if you like, in Europe at the moment with the influx of many people uh, who are fleeing persecution and war. And um, various attempts are, are, are being made to deal with this problem. Not all of them, I have to say, in my view, uh, successful. But one of the core principles which the court has confirmed is that it is unlawful to detain a child, to imprison a child, uh, particularly an unaccompanied minor. And where a child may need to be uh, kept in custody for the purposes of protecting that child, he or she must be, con must be kept in, a con in conditions which are appropriate to um, his age um, and, 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 and so forth. And for example, a child must be given educational facilities if they are to be, uh, if they are to be kept in custody pending a decision as to, as to what or where they, what is to be done or where they must go. Uh, so I think the Strasbourg Court has made some progress um, in this regard. Um, it has also uh, emphasized that when dealing with children in courts, they must have conditions available to them which enable them to participate effectively in proceedings. And this was confirmed considerable time ago in a case uh, T and V versus the United Kingdom. T and V were two juveniles who had kidnapped um, a little boy as he was leaving, as he was in a supermarket with his mother. And they had subjected this two-year-old child to the most horrendous death. Um, and they were tried in prison, they were tried in British courts and they were convicted and found guilty. But they complained through their lawyers to the Strasbourg court that they hadn't received a fair trial because they were treated as if they were adults. They were brought into the witness box, the judges and the lawyers had their wigs and gowns on, and, and they didn't have the kind of supports which children, um, which children require. And the court found a violation of Article 6 in that case um, because it confirmed that for a child to participate effectively in criminal proceedings, they need other supports which adults don't need. So for example, the presence of a counselor or a social worker um, who will explain to them in the language that they understand what is happening. Um, judges and, and lawyers don't wear their wigs when they're talking to the children. Um, in other words, they try to take away the intimidation of the courtroom. And uh, these, these uh, are important protections, I think, in terms of children's participation. Um, I think for the future, I think the question was, what are the next steps that we might need to take? Um, I think there is work to be done in developing the law in relation to the bullying of children through uh, the internet. I think cyberbullying um, and the mm. suicides that, that often result from that amongst the young population, I think that's really um, a pressing problem in a number of countries. And I think uh, consideration needs to be given as to how we can better protect our children um, when they are dealing with, with the internet. Um, even though, of course, there is the obligation to ensure that the right to free speech is protected. But getting that balance right, particularly when vulnerable children uh, are an issue, I think that's probably the next uh, great challenge, or at least one of them. Thank you. May I take 30 seconds to add a postscript to my previous Certainly. statement? Certainly. Uh, so that it is not misinterpreted. Um, uh, if it is, if it is uh, a myth, uh, that judges are 
simply referees calling balls and strikes. Uh, I think it is equally a myth that judges are nothing but legislators in disguise. And I fear that in the present climate in the United States in particular, we have come to regard the courts in such political terms that we've lost sight of the constraints which every judge feels and which every judge on this panel has articulated uh, that, that constrains judges within the law, within the values of the society, and, uh, uh, and, and not and not acting as a free agent to develop policies that they think would be desirable. Thanks. Judging is a delicate balance. <laughs> thank you so much. And with that, uh, I'm going to say thank you to all of our judges for being with us tonight. It's been an interesting program and all sorts of things that could have been said if we had more time, but we do not. Thank you for being with us. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's show. And thank you again to Cogent Legal for recording and providing the audio from this event. And thank you to Molly Alcorn, our audio editor. If you enjoyed today's show, please uh, leave us a review on iTunes or just tell your friends about it. You can also find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter, at CapImpactCA. And you can find our blog online. It's www.CapImpactCA.com. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. Talk to you again soon.